I just want to push people to be more specific about, like you said, which culture, whose culture, because that wasn't my culture. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Solstice. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Dominic Bradley. Raised in the crunk-era Dirty South, Dominic Cinnamon Bradley is a Brooklyn-based, Black, disabled, queer, visual artist, writer, and performer. In 2021, they were a Rise Out Activist-in-Residence Fellow, focusing on creating resources and conversation about mental health on behalf of BIPOC LGBTQIA New Yorkers. Dominic is a freelance sensitivity and authenticity reader who has worked with various publishing houses to help authors portray three-dimensional characters. Dominic was the sensitivity reader for Fat Talk, which is how I became connected with them. And I thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation about what a sensitivity reader does and what it adds to the book. And also have you all get to know Dominic a little bit more because they are amazing. So here's Dominic, but first a quick break. Okay, so since this is a book-focused podcast episode, my plug for you today is, of course, to consider pre-ordering Fat Talk. Pre-orders are so important. They help authors in a ton of different ways. And particularly with Fat Talk, you know, sales for this book are not just about my bottom line. Authors really don't make a lot of money off individual book sales as it happens. But a book like this selling well helps the publishing market understand that we need more books about anti-fat bias, we need more books about fat people, and we need to center these stories. So your contribution by supporting the book in terms of a pre-order really goes a long way towards helping the publishing industry understand why these kinds of books are so necessary. If a pre-order is out of reach for you, you can also ask your library to order it and then put it on hold when they do. But if you can pre-order, you can get a signed copy from my local independent bookstore, Split Rock Books in Cold Spring, New York, or you can order it anywhere you buy books. And we have all of that linked for you in the episode description. So I am based in Brooklyn. I'm a visual artist, a writer, sometime performer. And I also happen to do freelance work for publishing houses in regards to what's known as sensitivity reads or authenticity reads. I like both. Do you have a preferred term, sensitivity or authenticity? I use them interchangeably. What got you into doing sensitivity reads in the first place? I'm curious to hear the backstory. Purely by accident. (laughs) (laughs) It was happenstance, really. There was an author who was not connected to a publishing house that I read for. Mm -hmm. And then there was an editorial firm that I read for. And gradually I started to get deeper and deeper into it until I ended up in a binder full of sensitivity readers. And (laughs) I was in several databases. (laughs) That's really how it happened. (laughs) So odd to think about, but yep, that makes sense. There are these binders full of people. Well, you really have a gift for it. Your notes were incredibly helpful on Fat Talk. You and I were connected by the folks at my publisher, Henry Holt. You just completed a sensitivity read of Fat Talk. It was really important to me to have a sensitivity read on this book in particular for a lot of reasons. 
I did have to nudge the publisher. They were very open to it. It's part of their process. But I was like, we're doing this, right? (laughs) And they were all like, yes, yes, we'll do it. So why don't we start by having you explain what is a sensitivity or authenticity read? What's the purpose? So the purpose of a sensitivity read or an authenticity read is to have someone with fresh eyes look at an author's manuscript and we're looking for specific things. So let's say that the author has a main character or even a secondary character that they've written that is outside of their own lived experience and they want feedback on making sure that those characters are as three-dimensional as possible. And that's where I come in as a reader. I can see for fiction this being so valuable to help flesh out characters and give the really true context of their lives in that way. And what about nonfiction? I think that nonfiction can be approached much the same way. But in nonfiction, you're not really assessing a character per se. What you're assessing is, are these facts full-bodied? Are you getting the entire picture? Are there other things to know about this event, this place, this person that the author may not have been clued into because the author, again, does not have the lived experience. What are some of the challenges of doing this work? I think one challenge of doing the work is you're very likely to encounter something that's going to upset you. (laughs) You know, and I think the other challenge would be trying to give feedback that propels the author forward rather than, I don't like this, or you should Mm. take this out, you know, or this is bad. Yes. This is bad is always a hard note to receive. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So attempting to go beyond that and say, for example, there was one manuscript where darkness had become synonymous with evil. And so just pointing out, I've seen you do this a lot and you're falling into this trope, which has already been widely discussed. Mm -hmm. And you may want to rethink how you approach that. Yes. And do you think It was a, for lack of a better term, a blind spot of theirs that they hadn't put that together. Is that what you often find? Like authors are just not aware that they need to be sensitive to this? Or is there sometimes times where their bias is leading, so to speak? You know, it's hard to speculate about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that it is lack of awareness rather than, in most cases, I would say lack of awareness rather than someone leading with their biases, just Mm -hmm. because um, all of these things are baked 
into our society, it is pretty much the path of least resistance. And so I think that authors find themselves relying on these stereotypes and tropes with sometimes without even being fully conscious of what they're doing. And it is uncomfortable to have your biases named, but we're never going to make progress if we can't sit in that discomfort and learn from it and really deal with how it's coming out. You mentioned another challenge is the toll it can take on you that, yeah, you may read something that's triggering or upsetting to you. Do you have any strategies for how you navigate that? How do you take care of yourself? Sometimes the way that I might be triggered by an author's manuscript is not immediately obvious. Sometimes it's very subtle. Mm. And I pay attention to what I'm feeling. And sometimes it's just a passage that I read it and I'm like, "Mm, something doesn't feel right with this. Mm -hmm. I read it over. I sit with it to try to see if I can articulate what it is specifically that is troubling. Mm -hmm. And that has turned out to be a good exercise. That makes sense. And both in terms of helping you identify what feedback you want to give to the author about why it's troubling, but also for your own process around it. Yes. This is a tricky piece of of this work. It's just, <laughs> you know, the potential for harm to ourselves. I mean, Fat Talk, as you know, is a book about anti-fat bias, which meant in the research of the book, I was often interviewing people who held really significant anti-fat bias and as a person, it's not fun to have those conversations, but it felt like such an important part of doing the work. So I can relate a little bit to what you're talking about there in terms of like, how do you protect yourself? You know, the work needs to happen. One comment early on when I got the manuscript back and I'm sitting down to look at the notes, a comment right off the bat where I was like, oh, this is going to be very useful was, I think in the introduction, I'd written something like, our culture teaches us that the ideal body is thin and blah, 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 blah. And you just wrote, do you mean white culture? And I was like, oh, yes, yes, this is what I need. I'm in this tunnel vision and not realizing I need to specify which culture I'm talking about because my white privilege was letting me assume everyone knows what I mean by culture. I'm curious if that kind of thing is a common mistake or if there are other common mistakes you see over and over, particularly when you're doing this work, I guess, for white authors in particular. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think that's common. And, you know, I just want to push people to be more specific about, like you said, which culture, whose culture. Mm-hmm. Because that wasn't my culture, <laughs> you know, and the impulse to, number one, not name this as white culture, and number two, to position it as universal. Yeah, that's common. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, yeah. Well, it was a really helpful note and it helped me then kind of go through and look for other instances where I was doing that and tighten it up a little bit. I mean, hopefully we are all imperfect in learning and I'm sure I didn't catch everyone. You also had, and I don't want to give away too much because the book's not out yet, but there is a section where I deal with Michelle Obama, who is a really complicated person in the conversation of anti-fat bias. And your notes there were also just incredibly helpful because it helped me realize how important it was to acknowledge her personal experiences, both in the conversations around fat phobia that she experienced and anti-Black racism and sexism. And you really helped me sharpen that up a lot. So I really appreciated that because I was mindful that I didn't have the right experience to sort of do her justice, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually remember that part. Again, I want to be careful not to absolve her of responsibility for the way that she approached these campaigns, but also realizing that her body, her daughter's bodies were going to be scrutinized in a way that was unprecedented yeah. because they're Black women. And also that, politically speaking, she was going to be funneled to whatever the administration deemed least controversial, least mm-hmm. offensive. So... That's kind of my thought on that, is that it gets a little bit complicated. Yeah. And again, I had, in introducing her, I had a section later on where I talked about the stigma she experienced, but just in introducing her, I think I identified her as like a beloved public figure. And you were like, um... She was not a universally beloved, you know. She experienced so not much. at all. Like, yeah, she was yeah. called all kinds of monkeys and, every, yes. like, they, they horrendous, went for her. And again, it was just an example of, oh, Virginia, you're in your little liberal bubble where everybody worships Michelle Obama. That's one piece of this, but you cannot describe her as universally beloved. And that was such a helpful note. And then helping me sort of sharpen the sections where I did talk about the stigma she experienced. The piece about the administration was such an excellent point and how they couldn't give her any topic that would look like she was honestly like doing anything overtly political, right? Because she was already under such scrutiny that it would have led to such a backlash of like, oh, is she overstepping her role? And then, of course, like, what does that say that we've decided the, quote, uncontroversial issue we can give her is childhood obesity, even though, you know, that should not be a neutral topic. So being a sensitivity reader is definitely not your only gig. I read in your bio that you are a recovering social worker and also an artist who works in visual art, writing, and performance. So would love to know more about that work and particularly how your art intersects with your mental health work. So in 2021, I had a fellowship with the LGBT Center in Manhattan, and it was called the Rise Out Activist in Residence Fellowship, where I 
developed this mental health initiative that had three parts to it. The first was the development of an adult coloring book featuring members of the community with mental health affirmations on it. And then the second was a wellness demo video on how to create a one-page wellness plan using visual note-taking techniques. And then the third component was actually a panel composed of four community members who were talking about transgenerational strengths when it comes to mental health. Ooh, say more about that, transgenerational strengths around mental health. There is a quote. I think it can be attributed to to a person named Xavier Dagba, but the quote, I'm paraphrasing, said, you know, your ancestors didn't just give you wounds, they gave you strengths also. Mm. So I curated some questions to dig deep, you know, more deeply into that theme. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, a good discussion. So Such a powerful reframing of the way these stories often, too often get told. And is the coloring book something that's still available for folks? It is. Like, I still have a lot of books left from this first print run. And I would love to give them away to people. With everything that's been happening, have not had a chance to, you know, go out and bring my books, give my spiel, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and a leave lot of them work. in the hands of <laughs> people of who will use them. <laughs> well, we'll link in the show notes, too, because I saw some of this on your website. So we'll link over there, and folks who are interested can get in touch. So that's awesome. Do you have any projects you're either working on now or thinking about working on in the future that you're excited about? I can say broadly that... I am working on, I want to work on some visual things, and I'm also interested in working on some writing. I don't want to say more because I don't want to jinx it. Totally hear you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll leave it at that. But yes, there's some things that I very much am hoping to complete this winter. Amazing. Well, we will certainly be waiting to see it and celebrate it when you're ready for it to be in the world. And I know that process can be circuitous at best. So we end every podcast with a segment that I call Butter for Your Burnt Toast, since the podcast is called Burnt Toast and Toast Needs Better. So it's just a fun recommendation segment where we each recommend anything we're really loving right now. Hmm... I am excited about a purchase that's coming. Now, both of us wear glasses, right? Yes, Um, and I'm admiring your glasses (laughs) this whole conversation. See, what I like to do is 
to get my eyes checked and get the information about the prescription. And then I go to fun websites like <gasps> Zlul, Zenny, Vogue Me, and I go on a mini shopping spree <gasps> in which I can get the cutest prescription flames. So these just came um, a day or so ago. And I have another pair that's coming, you know, in a little while. And so I'm right now I'm in the midst of building my glasses collection back up because my prescription changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, it's slowly but surely though. Yes. So that, that's kind of a quirk of mine is Um, getting all these glasses. (laughs) We have this deeply in common, Dominic. I have many pairs of glasses. I did not know, however, about these online shopping options. So I'm very excited you shared this. I just want to share it for listeners because they won't be able to see you. Dominic's glasses are like a tortoise shell on top. Is that right? And then yellow on the bottom half. And folks who know me know I have a tortoise shell with a light blue on the bottom half. That's like my favorite pair. So I've been like obsessed the whole conversation. Like they come in yellow. There's a yellow pair. (laughs) They're so good. I have a local glasses shop that's really wonderful. And so I usually like get my eyes checked there and then buy their glasses. But you just opened up a whole world of possibilities for me. A whole world. You can be free. (laughs) Free. It's exciting. This is exciting. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. there's going to be some damage done to the credit cards. <laughs> no, but the great thing about it is they often have sales. Right, right. So yeah. you don't even have to pay full price. Oh, that's exciting. And if you can tolerate having thicker lenses, that's a way that you can save too. Yeah, thicker lenses are kind of just a fact of my life because my prescription's so strong that they can never make them that thin. What does the pair that you are waiting on, what do they look like? Okay, so they're kind of like the shape of the glasses is aviator. And the, you know, this part is magenta. (gasps) And then on top is like a tortoise shell. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see what those are going to like look and feel like. I might need you to send a picture when they come. (laughs) They sound fantastic. Yeah. My nine-year-old daughter just got her first pair of glasses and my husband is also really into glasses. We're kind of known, like we're glasses people. And we were both (laughs) like, oh my God, baby's first glasses. And she got, she picked two pairs because I was like, you need a backup, especially with kids, you know, they might lose them. One pair is like a bright, like a pinky red and they, they're very round and they have little cat ears on the top. Like, so they look like, like, you know how there's like the cat eye glasses. Oh, These literally have little cat ears. They're so cute. Oh my gosh. And the other pair are blue and they have like rainbow hearts on the arms, like it's like really come a long way from when I was a kid anyway. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is an excellent recommendation, shopping for amazing glasses. I'm going to recommend an artist that I'm really excited about. Her name is Fabiana Rodriguez. And 
absolutely gorgeous, very like bright colors. She does a lot with plants. She has a whole houseplant series, like flowers from her garden, also really beautiful, like portraits of women. It's all collage. It's They're just like stunning. We'll link to some. And we were able to get a piece of hers for our, our dining room that I'm just obsessed with. And it's like multi-layered. I mean, the intricacy of it is just blows me away. And she's an amazing like feminist activist, just all around awesome person. So I will link to her work. So Dominic, thank you so much. It was Truly an honor to have you do the sensitivity read on Fat Talk. It helped so, so much. And it's been a real joy to get to talk to you about it, too. So thank you. Can you tell listeners where we can follow you and how we can support your work? I'm on Instagram at Dom Does Dreams. I also have a website that's still looking a little rough. Um, <laughs> I'll go ahead in a minute. But you can also find me there, domdoesdreams.com. And by the way, if anyone wants to help me with said website, by all means. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. We will mention that as well. I love it. Great. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. The Burt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.